Welcome to the Laity Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations about Christian spirituality, discovery, and practice. Thanks for joining in. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the podcast. It's been a minute. We're so grateful for your patience and uh, you coming along for the ride here in this episode. We got to meet Dr. David Bentley Hart, had a conversation with him regarding his latest book, That All Shall Be Saved, which was released last fall. We originally had this conversation with Dr. Hart back in November of 2019, although last week, Stephen and I reflected on the episode and wanted to give a bit of an introduction to tee up the content. If you want to skip that introduction, go ahead and fast forward to about the 41 minute mark. That's where our original conversation with Dr. Hart picks up. Otherwise, hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome everyone to a long-awaited episode of the podcast. This is Andrew. Stevens here. We are uh, we're back after quite a hiatus, a, an unintentional hiatus. That's what happens, man. That's what happens. It really is. It really is. We're excited, guys. We wanted to carve out a little bit of time for a sort of preamble to the David Bentley Hart episode. We got to record, oh, you know, just months ago <laughs> we uh had the privilege of of uh meeting dr hart virtually for an interview on his latest book called that all shall be saved that was actually i think it was in november um prior to or early november yep. and uh man life just life is just life and unfortunately they don't pay us enough to do this podcast to <laughs> make it a little more of a priority uh, so thanks everyone for just bearing with us. I know some of you have like regularly followed up with me. Shout out to my father-in-law who's always consistent and uh, the best listener we got. And um, you know, it's interesting, Stephen, I didn't even tell you this. I got a text from my dad um, probably three weeks ago that said that there was an individual. So I lived in central Pennsylvania for a few years when we were growing up. We were part of like a church plant there and like literally elementary school age. And my dad texted me that said one of the guys who I knew, you know, my dad's demographic, my dad's age, um, had been listening to the podcast, no idea how he got turned on to it. Um, but then he referred it to other people. And these are people I haven't talked to in like 15 plus years and don't know well. Um, but shout out to anybody who's in, uh, Lancaster PA listening. So I think, man, things are still, the ball's still rolling with this stuff. I guess that must be why we have like 10 million downloads, uh, Last week is that in, what it in, is in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I was wondering about that. Did we actually have a lot? I have no idea. I haven't looked. Oh, okay. I haven't looked at that in a while. No Ten million. I figured it was like a million off, <laughs> but uh, but I I actually wouldn't have been surprised if it was Pennsylvania. Um. So, but seriously, I was like, man, you know what? People are still going back and listening to this stuff, and so there's a reason we pay Podbean to keep it up. Yeah. Um. So that's cool, man. So we were up in uh, the mountains this weekend, which is fun. Every year. The four of us uh, and whatever whoever has the youngest kid get a couple of days, couple of days out and off. That was fun, man. That was a good time. Yes, big thanks to grandparents for that one. Yeah, big time. And uh, I feel like we always end up talking about the podcast um, at least for thirty seconds. Like, hey, where are we going with this thing? And I'm excited about the couple of conversations we at least discuss possibly getting into. You know, maybe some local Atlanta folks, some folks we know more personally, um, having having them on as guests, and so. I'm genuinely excited. And, and listeners, part of the delay, there actually was a, a lost episode. 
shout out to uh, Matthew Bates uh, for you know bearing with the the challenges. But we recorded an episode like weeks and weeks and weeks ago, and then unfortunately we went to retrieve it, and uh, it was no longer alive in the cloud, so we lost one. But uh, we're excited to hopefully be a little bit more consistent. Yeah. No. Well, and this is for me, man. Like this, it, it, this is just a, a, another kind of area I think from my, my life where I'm. I'm fine with not having a grand, you know, vision project charter, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, KPIs or whatever. Like I, yeah. I, I like, I like more just the, it's, it's sometimes it's, 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 it's infrequent cause we've got other priorities and whatnot, but there's a, you know, one step at a time and, and, uh, and it keeps me reading and thinking and in the conversation. And of course we could hang out. So it's a, it's, it's a great excuse where you locate this, uh, Hart's latest book, That All Shall Be Saved, on your, how do you kind of plot that on your list of most influential books that you've read in the last half of Yeah, years? so maybe this is a good transition. So man, this book, the book was awesome. I mean, the book was great. And in general, we've talked about this. I think in general, sort of that broader eschatological, or eschatology, apocalyptic, those conversations, sort of eternity, heaven and hell, where you go when you die, definitely of interest-ish to me. Um, But probably I think you've dove in, you have dived in or dove in more than I have just historically, even over the last number of years. I I can count on one hand how many books I've actually read on the subject. Um, You know, the most influential for me to date had probably been Jurisak's book, um, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. But Mm. the, um, which I just appreciated that perspective. But Unlike that book, although I think Brad does say, hey, here's sort of where I land-ish, but he does, I think, even a better job just laying out these different perspectives, particularly on hell, um, whereas Dr. Hart is just like, no, this is how it is. <laughs> but but he does also say here are some other arguments, but he's kind of like, those are all nonsense. I mean, Do- Dr. Hart is, so maybe this can kind of tee up the episode as well, and people will see in about 30 seconds in us talking to him, clearly, incredibly professorial, academic um, you know, of course, also cares quite a bit. You know, he's not a pastor, but of course, is very aware of sort of the current landscape. Um, but it's clear, sort of, his even just the way he speaks um, and how he writes that he's very much writing in this academic to this academic audience. Um, but even so, I didn't find the book to be too lofty or flowery <clears throat> or even too long. I thought it was relatively consumable. Um, but definitely really influential. Stephen, maybe uh, to pivot to you to start to tee up the book and the conversation, give our listeners a sense. I mean, what is the the title, you know, of course, sets the thesis of the book, That All Shall Be Saved. Um, but what is what is Dr. Hart getting at here? What's sort of the crux of the book? Oh, man. Uh, so That All Shall Be Saved, the, the subtitle is Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Um the, the gist of what I think he's getting at, and I'm not sure that he's really addressing it specifically to academic folks. Um, I mean, wh- wh- when you read it, he definitely has a, um, uh, he he doesn't mince his words. Uh, he, he he doesn't like people that are mealy-mouthed. And, uh, well, he's he, 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 he throws some jabs. Um, but I think that's 100%. more just kind of a, I mean, he has that same sort of tone in his, in his other works. I've, I've read um, uh, the experience of God, or I've listened to the experience of God from his uh, on Audible, and uh, I've read his other one on um, 
or is it evil? I think the, the doors of the sea. Mm-hmm. And it's got similar sort of a similar bite, and 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 eventually it kind of grows on you. But at first, it does kind of it does kind of take the wind out of you for a minute. <laughs> yeah, he's he just um, doesn't pull any punches. It's a but it's a it's it's a great book. I, I you, you were asking like like sort of the 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 central question in the book, or what do you? Yeah, mean? why don't you give our li- listeners who have never heard of Doctor Hart or the book? I mean, what what subjects are we diving into here, and what's the the crux of the of the argument, not the the arguments, but sort of the the core thesis of the book. Well, the main thing that I that I uh, that I think he's doing with it is, I think, just arguing. Well, he's arguing really, really forcefully for uh, the inclusion of, um, and not even just the inclusion. How would I even word this? So he he's actually his main target in this book is what he calls. Um, uh, infernalism, um, or, or the, the doctrine of hell that believes that hell is a place of conscious and eternal torment. And, uh, he, he lands some pretty solid blows, um, from the scriptures and also some, from some, you know, philosophically, of course, you know, all philosophical argument ultimately ends up in some kind of a, (laughs) depends on the, on, on the, on the rules you decide to play by. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm sure there can be, uh, you know, responses and whatnot. But uh, but I, I don't I don't know that I see a great way out of a lot of what he's getting at, um, at least against uh, infernalism and, and the idea that God that it, that God could at once be good and uh, manifest that goodness in the eternal torment of of anyone, right? Um, let alone like most of all people the vast majority all of all um, people in the history of of humanity yeah so but in doing that he also he also uh um kind of he sends a few in the direction of uh of folks that i i guess i'd kind of plotted myself in and, and frankly it's been pretty uncomfortable to read the book because i needed to it's 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 got me thinking about a lot of things and we can unpack some of that later if you want but um he he also uh, throws a few in the direction of, of folks that, that are, are what he described or what, what might be described as like sort of hopeful universalists. Like, yeah, maybe I hope it kind of works out, but I don't really know what God's going to do. Um, and uh, he, excuse me, he he has a, a number of kind of arguments against that that are that I think are pretty pretty interesting and pretty uh, pretty tough to wrestle with. Um, and it's, we should also note out though, we should point out that it's, it's, it's in talking about universalism, um, it's not the variety, the sort of like, uh, oh, everyone's good. We really just need to try to be good people. Don't worry about, you know, what's going to happen if you die. Just everyone's good. I'll pass, you know, ultimately go the same direction. It's actually not that at all. What what he's arguing very solidly is that, um, the, the 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 idea that the power um, of the you know, the life death burial and resurrection of Jesus um, the, the idea of that the power being so strong that it actually could one day uh, sort of encompasses all of everything um, so that eventually God is all in all um, yeah that that that's this idea is is not something new agey as it's often kind of uh derided you know oh you're just uh you're just soft you don't really uh want to take a stand you don't really believe in judgment you don't believe in sin i mean he he kind of he really i think 
knocks a lot of that down. Um, and, and what, and he, he shows how even just historically in the church, this, this has been a position now it's not, never really been a, a majority position, but it has been in the, in the conversation and in the family, uh, for a very, 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 very long time. Yes. Um, <clears throat> going all the way back to the first couple hundred years or so. Um, I mean, you know, he would also argue, yeah, going back to Paul and Jesus. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, there's, uh, it, it's, it's not new. And I think that's, that's one of the things that was, um, so striking to me was, you know, I, I, I tend to believe, or I, I'm, I'm, I think we're all kind of inclined to believe this, that like, uh, we, we, we think what we think about the scriptures or about God, because we're like rational agents and we're trying to think through things and process things and, um, trying to, uh, as best as we can, of course, no one can be totally objective, but as best as we can, we're trying to look at the scriptures, look at the arguments and then make a decision about what we think is, um, kind of the most reasonable path forward. And, uh, for me, I think I just, this book, I, I, I think I hadn't, he basically challenged, he basically called out the way I, I, I had been thinking of God uh, as idolatry um, in the book. You remember that? I mean, so it's, that's in that first meditation, what is God? Um, mm-hmm. Or who is God? That's, uh, for, for, for a while, especially as, as you get more interested in like the open theism or process theology line of thinking about God, um, classical theism kind of becomes like a punching bag, like a, like a, Oh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, when, you, when you read some of these folks, it, it can kind of have this sort of a sense that people are, um, you know, almost like making jokes at like the idea that there could be, you know, it's, it's all straw men, like that God is just his grandfather in the sky mm-hmm. or some cosmic cop or whatever. Um, and, and it becomes easy to, I think, uh, to, to laugh at on uh, at the idea of of omnipotence um, for people in that camp, uh, because of course they look at the world and they see how how crazy things are, and they're like, "Well, if you're all powerful, you're not doing anything. You're clearly not good." So, right. Um, but he he the way he thinks about uh, who is God, what is God, him being omnipotent, um, I I'd never. I, I hadn't really, I, I, I was not really educated in this kind of stuff. So, you know, Plato and Aristotle and all, I mean, I've read about them. I've never actually really dug into their material. Um, and to hear the way that he portrays like the vision of God in classical theism is just profoundly convincing, yeah. really, really strong. Um, and it, and it made uh, some of, some of my kind of assumptions about God, uh, it may, maybe really go back and think about it. I'm still thinking about him. So yeah, I feel like I'm rambling too much here. But I'm, let me let me. Uh, what what did you? How did it affect you as you were reading? It? I mean, what what did it kind of leave you with? Yeah. Well, just to appreciate the question. I mean, well, the simple answer is I think it was just a very powerful vision of who God is and what His intention has been. I mean, j- just to set the stage a little bit more. I mean, for folks that are unfamiliar and you know you'll be able to hear this the book is essentially you know arguing that that in the end the goodness of god and the the overwhelming love 
sort of welcoming reality of God will bring all everyone to to salvation. And I just want to emphasize again, because we don't on the podcast because it doesn't make sense to. I mean, this is very much not a. There's nothing sort of soft about about the argument whatsoever. And just to rehash again, the I, I think where, where Doctor Hart starts is really with the initial sort of Christian and early Christian vision of salvation. Um, and the fact that <clears throat> essentially the vision, this idea, first of all, this idea of hell being this eternal conscious, conscious tormented, you know, uh, tormenting lake of fire or anything else that sort of this apparently all good and all loving God set up for majority of humankind, um, just, you know, A, has a next to no real biblical evidence, um, certainly zero in, in all of Paul, um, and maybe a couple allusions to something that can be read that way in Jesus, i.e., you know, Matthew 25, um, which we talk about a little bit. But outside of— I suspect of, the infernalist might feel like Paul has something to say on him, but yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. So David would say, yeah, that, that's not in there, but yeah, correct. So— that being said, he's sort of like, where, where has this come from? How have we kind of let this become sort of such a widespread way of thinking about who God is? And he brings out so many great points about this. And, you know, one, and we didn't talk to him about this enough, but I love his vision of salvation in general. In fact, he has a throwaway yeah. comment in the interview where he says, well, I don't really think oh. salvation is, I don't believe in yeah. individual salvation, essentially is what he's saying. I don't believe in salvation as for, for one individual rather. And at one point he does say sort of the salvation of, if it's not the salvation of all, it's the salvation of none. Um, and we talked about, do you remember how he unpacks that? Can you, in the book? Yeah. Um, this is a really, really, really bad way of doing it. And it's been like five months since I read the book, but, uh, or form, whatever it was essentially that like, and this is maybe not where he makes the argument, but at one point he does say, you know, if you make it to heaven and you look, turn around and, you know, all of your best friends, family and loved ones are like either in the lake of fire burning for eternity or are, you know, in line to do so or whatever other kind of grotesque image you, you bring to mind. Um, what's so enjoyable about that salvation? I mean, is there is there anything about is there any part of you that if you ex- were to experience this now, is there any part of you that's going to feel a sense of like accomplishment or peace or or salvation, right? Being in the quote unquote saved column and not be, if all those who are closest to you are on the other side. And then I'd go further and I think he does too. Um, what if anyone was on the other side of the fence? Like if you're on the, you know, on the heavenly side and you see your neighbor who maybe you don't love or you don't have a, an affectionate relationship with or you don't have a person, but they're, you know, they haven't made it. Um, and and right. they're, Again, they're not just kicked out. They are going to be tortured, um, burned alive, you know, for, for the rest of eternity while you're like in bliss. What's so blissful about that image? Um, and this resonated profoundly with me because I feel like that now. And it's not because I'm so gracious and overflowing with love and, and humanity or whatever. But just like if, if in general, if I'm enjoying something and, you know, like, isn't Jesus the one who's like, forget this heaven stuff. Like, I'm jumping the fence to be with those people, not just in solidarity, but like an ultimately in an effort to win them over. And so it's that same general concept that like, how good is salvation if it's not included, if it's not, in, if it doesn't include everyone? Um, and, yeah, and what I, I, sort of, de- I'll let you, after this line, I mean, what, what sort of sort of demented way of thinking 
like, like there is a way of thinking that's like, this isn't really going to be enjoyable for, enjoyable for me unless it excludes other people, like in general in life. Like what makes this so wonderful, be it money or a position or anything, is that those people, you know, they lost, right? And that sort of losing. And there is this sort of twisted thinking that can surface. And he points this out. This sort of like, well, if, you know, how good is heaven going to be if there aren't people in hell? Like if we all make it, how valuable is it really? And I think that's what his point, I think, is like what kind of heart, like that's clearly not the heart of Christ, yeah, well, I, and he makes the point too that uh, I, I think the way he phrased it, and I, I have to remember, I, I haven't listened to it in a while, but I think he does say that I I, I don't believe in the salvation of individuals, or like he, so uh, if God, if if what God saves or who God saves includes people, uh, but in order to save those people, he has to let's say like obliterate the memory of yes. Yes, loved ones or whatever. Who so so that you're so that you're not in in heaven in like a blissful state, but thinking of people that you miss or contemplating that yeah their miseries. Yep. Um. You know, if if what God has to do then is wipe out their memories, or um, you know, somehow like like anesthetize you from that, then what God is saving isn't really a person anymore yeah. because because people the relationships that we're a part of become part of who we are they, they become who they if they they change who we are and they so we're in 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 a sense we are all kind of bound into one another's stories um so that the uh and and he obviously is this, well, much stronger in the book than you and i can but so that basically if 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 if, if it even if even there was a chance that only that only one person would forever, you know, be damned uh, in conscious eternal torment, um, then he, he he sees that that that's incompatible with a God who saves people. Now, it would be compatible yeah. with a God who saves, let's say, um, disembodied, like souls. faithful souls uh, or drone, like you know, sort of, <laughs> you know, drones or something. Um, Maybe that's not the right term, but you know, you know, like like little, like almost uh, you know, truly faithful zombies or something. Yeah. Um, but not persons, and and that that was interesting, man. I, yeah. I, yeah, it resonated with me. No, that's right. You did a much better job explaining, but I think he makes my point also. But I think that's 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 exactly right. Yeah, man, the book it it was yeah, it is really compelling, and we we're thirty minutes in, so maybe we don't go into all the arguments, but I I think what he is advocating for makes a lot of sense. And again, one of my favorite parts is the beginning or at the middle of the book, he kind of says like, Hey, for those who are just like looking for the scriptures to like back this up. I mean, at one point he lays out like 30 or something passages. Cause he, he has this argument at one point in the book, which I think I bring up in the podcast that when it comes to passages that apparently look to be something like infernalism or eternal conscious torment or hell, you know, we, we just take those at face value, right? He's like, most of these passages, we use some level of, you know, hermeneutical sort of, uh, you know, processing. And we say, well, this is literal, this is not. But like, he, what he argues is like, anything that has to do with what looks like hell, we tend to just take totally literally at face value. We're like, oh yeah, that that thing is hell. And he's like, well, what about all of these passages? One, that's sort of problematic in and of itself. Two, what about all of these passages that are like, 
clearly speaking to what appears to be sort of this universal salvation, Christian salvation. And he just lays out the scriptures. Do you remember that part? He, I mean, he has like a list. It's just this, 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 this. And I was like, sometimes it's just, it was just awesome. It was just like a punch in the face. And you realize quickly based on the historical context he gives, the biblical evidence that he gives, and of course the rational, philosophical, broader arguments. He's like, this is not just some lofty sort of, he's pulling this out of nowhere and really hoping this hell thing doesn't exist. Um, he's he's coming with some serious ammunition. This one, I I, I think I'm really glad he wrote it because I mean I I'm I'm a little worried that people are going to be turned off by the tone, but um, if you really I think it I think it does a really good job of making of just making the case that like you can think this and be firmly within <laughs> the Christian stream, right? Like this totally. is not. If yeah, you are someone point. who has an issue with uh, an idea of God that would, um, you know, torture people forever, or or even that would like terminate their existence because of beliefs that they held largely due to circumstances that they had no control over, um, you don't think those things because you are like weak and soft, and you know right. you don't like that's that's not. That's not why you feel that way. In fact, there's there's a there's a there's a a stream in there, there's there's a community in the church that is that has always thought um, that those kinds of that line of sort of reasoning was was just not not sustainable right. and and posited this other way that that, that yeah that, that 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 for God to be good um, it it does have to actually encompass all. Dude, I love it. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole other episode. I mean, what are the implications, right? Like, what if we actually took seriously? Like, what if this is actually the case? Um, it's pretty interesting, man. I, the responses I get or I've gotten when I've kind of brought this up to folks. Like, hey, what if in the end God does reconcile all in Christ? Um, and there is this sense of, there can be this sense of loss. It's very bizarre. It's a very bizarre thought exercise. Yep. Um, like, Hey, if, what do you mean? What, if what, everyone what is, is saved, why am I trying to live this? This is stuff that's come up. Mm-hmm. Why would I try to live this kind of life? If in the end, everybody's going to get in. Why? So here's some other questions that we'll suss this out. What, what's the purpose of salvation, Re, you know, repentance, salvation, the Holy spirit, discipleship. If in the end everyone's going to get in, like there's this sense of if 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 it's sort of the I think it's the same phenomenon that Jesus susses out in the parable of the is it the vineyard workers, whatever the one where it's like okay if people are going to show up at six p.m. and make as much money as I made, showing up at six a.m. and giving my whole life and soul to this, then what? And yeah, there's one individual who's a friend. So it's all good. And I, I appreciate the authenticity. You said, like, legitimately asked, like, kind of what's the point of this whole, like, what's the point of following Jesus, essentially? And I feel like if, if everyone's going to get saved, if everyone's going to heaven, why would I, like, why do I need to do this? It was twofold. Oh, man. Sort of, why do I need to do this if I'm going to get in anyway? And number two, like, why should I live this kind of life if those people who don't care at all are going to reap the same benefit? 
And I was like, dude, the question is revealing so much. What do you mean? I was like, just listen to this question again. Listen to the implication. Just listen to what you're asking. What is the point of following Jesus in this life if in the end everyone will be saved? And it, to me, that thinking and that the source, the root of that question reveals so much about how we think about, how we can think about salvation, discipleship, frankly, this life, right? So if you start to peel that onion back, like for folks that listen to this and start having reactions, like we all will, like not just to his tone or but maybe to, to the subject matter, like, wait a minute, this can't, I would just encourage everyone to really think on and listen on where that's coming from. There's going to, you know, it's natural maybe to have a reaction of, well, this, you know, I don't know if this is true, right? Or sort of this, I don't see enough of the evidence or, you know, that's all fine. And we, people can work through that. But maybe at the root, is if, there, if there's a reaction at the root of it to, wait a minute, if God lets everybody in, like how much of your individual salvation in your mind is predicated on a large majority of people not being saved? And if that's the case, what does that say about sort of the heart and the root of our faith? Um, at one point, he yeah. literally says, at one point, he literally says, like when he was a kid, hearing these stories about people going, or hearing preachers talk about all these people going to hell, and then he starts studying like the Buddhists or whatever. And then later, he's like, man, like the Buddhist vision of Christianity, or the, the Buddhist sort of vision of humanity and, and salvation was like, you know, with if you believe in sort of infernalism is like more hopeful than the Christian message, which mm-hmm. is a message of like resurrection, new life, right? So he starts to say like, man, if this is really the case, so I think we should just ask ourselves what ask ourselves what's at the root of this, and if there's this sense of a sort of again, why why do this if we're all going to get in? Uh, meaning like, why am I sacrificing my life and living a certain kind of way if I'm if if I'm going to get to heaven anyway? I would encourage folks to, to ask the question sort of, well, what, what is this salvation and following Jesus for? Is this just for kind of an afterlife reward? It clearly doesn't seem to be Jesus's, you know, reason, uh, in my opinion. And then secondly, if it's a reaction to this idea that other people get to get in, um, the people that didn't work as hard, or the people that showed up at the proverbial 6 p.m., you know, for the last shift. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I suspect a lot of people... Well, there's there's a lot there. I, for me, I mean, to, to sort of take it out of the abstract, I, I could definitely say that this line of thinking is absolutely present in my life, right? Like, why am I going to bust my tail and go to school or go do grad school or do whatever uh, if I don't get to go live in the gated community, or like 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 why? Yes. <laughs> or why why would you do all the work? to achieve a certain sort of standard of living and then go get rid of it all or, or go get rid of, you know, whatever you feel like you need to do in order to follow Jesus. Um, it, it, it's, it's the, the, the way I see it in my mind is I do want to be special. Like that's right for me. Yes. One of the functions of my faith uh, has been uh, for a long time is, is it, as it, it kind of tells me that I'm special. And and I don't mean that in a pejorative, like negative, you know, my, everything was terrible. I grew up all wrong. No, I don't mean that at all. I don't think that at all. Um, right. But in my mind, like one of the functions that my faith has had is it tells me I'm special. 
And one of the things that makes me special is like, I'm, I'm, I would think of myself as one of the like few people who are just trying to follow Jesus. And, and, and that's a, uh, yeah, it, it really, it does challenge it. But then I, I, it, I think there's also, it's important to point out too, that I think people that you, like you can, the people that I talk to that feel like this, it, it's not that they, that this question comes from a bitterness towards other people or, or like anything. No. Yeah. Not well, maybe below the surface. I don't know, but at least uh, at the surface level, and like the first, the, I think I think it comes from from reading the scriptures and wanting to follow Jesus, and and they see that Jesus says, "Well, you know, the road is narrow." Um. So, and and very few people find it. So, how how do you handle those kinds of rejections when they're like, "Look, how in the world can can what Jesus says be true about the path being narrow, and only if you find it, if everyone ultimately." You're saved. It's a good question. I think I would start to draw the contrast between this narrow path of life lived during your life versus what God ultimately decides to bring in, like into the fold, right? So if you interpret that as it is a very narrow road to get into heaven when you die, um, it is a very narrow road to live the kind of life that would be worthy of entering heaven, then yes, that doesn't make any sense because it's like within the universal model, sort of like, okay, it's very narrow and only a few people are going to find it, but everyone's going to get in, to your point. But if you interpret it as narrow is the road that is the kind of life that we were designed for, that Jesus spoke of, and that is you know the the life that that leads to life to the full, this sort of here and now kind of life, full of the fruits of the Spirit, you know, without the wages of sin, and, and living, you know, the next 60, 70, 80, 100 years of your human life in the capacity and, and self-giving, generous way that Jesus has designed for you, frankly, without anything to do with eternal salvation, without anything to do with heaven in the end, in the traditional mm-hmm. sense— um, that road is very narrow, that if we're going to walk that path that Jesus has called us to, which reaps the rewards of you know, everything that you of the fruits of the Spirit, of joy, of love, of peace, of justice, of generosity, of reconciliation, like that path is incredibly narrow because most folks are not willing to change their behavior, their life, their beliefs, what have you, to walk that way, that we would rather just serve ourselves. Um I think it's still the case. I think walking that very, regardless of what God decides to do with everybody when it's all over, it is very difficult to walk that life now. And only a few people are going to do it. And it's challenging to do. So I would just naturally, and that could be a totally wrong, false interpretation. I would just naturally separate. And maybe this is a dualism, but I would sort of, I would start to separate. I would not interpret that passage as, very, very, very few people will do the right, you know, enter the right answers to the test and, you know, sort of get through the hoops in the way mm-hmm. that, you know, with a high enough bar and standard to get to heaven when you die. I'd rather interpret it as very narrow, very few are going to live the kind of life that Jesus has designed for us um, because it's just difficult 
and be, and yet, you know, the, the most fruitful life. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I would just separate those naturally. No, I think it definitely makes sense. I mean, uh, I'd, I, I would do something similar probably. I think it would be, I, I think Hart makes the point in the book that, that, um, What's missing usually, so when that's when that's the immediate question is like, well, and what's the point if everyone gets in? Um, what's what's missing is the what does he call it? There's sort of like these, like the, the the multiple horizons of judgment. So you'd have in, infernalists, ultimate reconciliation people, or universal you know Christian universalism. Um, and what we, I mean, just to throw this one in there, what's called conditionalism or the idea that, uh, immortality is only given by God, um, at the resurrection to people that are faithful. And so, you know, there's a, it's also called annihilationism. So if you die in this framework, if a person dies and they're like, not, um, they have not, uh, lived, um, so, you know, I guess submitted themselves to, you know, the, to the Lordship of Jesus, then, there's this. Uh, then, then what happens is there's a, an annihilation. Like they're 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 just not given immortality. Um, that's that's another one of the right. common perspectives that's in in the in the discussion. So, but all three of those hold to this idea. So again, the three are like eternal torment, um, conditionalism, uh, and Christian universalism. All three would hold to the idea that like uh, salvation uh, it, it comes in Jesus. It has what it has something to do with what Jesus has done on the cross. And his death, burial, and his resurrection, that there was a judgment. Um, and it's 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 real, it's severe. That, that and, and that, that's an important part. And I think it's becoming, I think now it's actually becoming um I don't know if it's I don't I don't know if I have my if I have you know a sense of of, of, of uh, or an accurate sense of what's going on right now, but it seems like in the conversation, talking about judgment is actually um to some extent kind of coming back, like it, as mm-hmm. as 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 naming things what they are. Right. So, uh, instead of, you know, this idea of, oh, we should judge not, no, we should actually say, Hey, that thing you're doing, stop it. Cause that's oppressive. That's wrong. That's this. Right. Um, it becomes important that things be judged that, you know, that, um, I've heard, uh, Jonathan Stormont say that, that, that forgiveness before it's anything is an indictment. It's actually, Hey, there, there was a breach here. Something went, you know, there something happened that wasn't right. It shouldn't happen. Um, and it's important that there be that judgment. Uh, wow. and, 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 and not, neither of those, I mean, for all three of those, th- those are true. Uh, all three of those positions would affirm those realities. But on the Christian universalism side, um, that judgment has a different function. It is not, uh, I think this is, this is another thing that I think kind of uh, offends our senses, uh, particularly as Americans and our justice system, is that... Um, Judgment becomes not so much uh, retributive, um, so it's it, it, right. it's it's less that you've offended God's honor, and this is the penalty that is due to you for offending someone as honorable and holy as God. Um, judgment in in the Christian universalism or universalist sort of framework is uh, it's it's a restorative thing. It's a pruning. It's a but it's still painful. I think. I mean. I, I mean. Yeah. Apparently, uh, and I'm, I'm. 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 On my long reading list. I got. I got to get more into those books. I've got the ones he mentions in his book. Um, I think from Gregory of Nicaea and 
a few others. I may not even have that the name right, but I know Gregory's in there. Um, they describe apparently that you know, they they describe this actually this 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 removing of those attachments, um, those things that 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 we continually cling to that are not faith, open love, as extraordinarily painful and horrifying. <laughs> right. Um, right. Because there, yeah, there's. I mean, how many of us truly, if we're honest, have built our life around faith, hope, and love? How many of us truly are operating under the the assumption that everything in our life is worthless and will fade into nothingness except for faith, hope, and love? We have all these things that we cling to, and those things will be pried out of our hands um, yeah. one way or another. And that's like, whew. Yeah, dude. So that... That's even if there is a prospect of of, of an ultimate reconciliation, um, man. There's it's not it's not a it doesn't it's it's not you know soft like you said. All right. Gosh, man, it's good. Good. Well, friends, I hope you enjoy the episode. Um, feel free to shoot us an email or or other things to get our attention if you have thoughts. And uh, thank you, Doctor Hart, for coming on. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. We are elated to have Dr. David Bentley Hart uh, on the podcast. Dr. Hart, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So South Bend, you're, you guys, how long is like the snow just piling in? Has this been like ongoing? Uh, no, no. We had we uh, had snow yesterday through early morning today, but actually it's beginning to let up. Uh, people to our west and north are suffering far more grievously than we are. Oh, gosh. Well, it's still that we're in the sunny south and not quite as cold, but uh, yeah, g- good luck. <laughs> we're not going for that. Uh, but Dr. Well, Hart, I, again, I, I, I'm a Marylander. This isn't really oh, my, right. my, my climate either. So. It's not quite your speed. Yeah, there you go. That's right. It's, it's not exactly my uh, uh, ideal place for seafood either, but you know, we do, <laughs> we do what we can. I hear Lake Michigan has quite the, uh, quite the spread, so. Uh, Just like yeah. the Chesapeake Bay, right? Apples, apples. No, no, very, very <laughs> unlike the Chesapeake Bay. But hey, you know, I mean, it, I, I don't. It, what what they consider seafood up here makes them happy, and so I don't try to spoil it for them by explaining to them what barbarians they are. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, for those of you who uh, don't know, Doctor David. Bentley Hart just put out the uh, new book, That All Shall Be Saved, Heaven, Hell, and Universal Salvation. Dr. Hart, of course, a, a renowned Eastern Orthodox theologian, professor, author, um, and one of, frank, frankly, one of the more significant thinkers um, in terms of you know theology and philosophy uh, in our time. And so we're, again, super grateful to talk about, talk about the book. So I'm curious, Dr. Hart, now that the book's been out for a number of months, and obviously this subject is not new to you, going back to lectures, you know, I think back in, call it 2015, 16, but what's sort of been the general reception thus far? Well, it's it's been a, a glorious polarity, you know, I mean, <laughs> there are those who are ecstatic about the book or those who are uh, outraged by it. It's uh, not, not that that's necessarily a new experience for me. It's just, it's a different, it's different constellations of personalities now. Um, uh, the good thing I can say is that all of the, uh, the negative reviews have been uh, so bad. I mean, so 
just in quality of, of, of argument that I haven't really had to stir myself to, to argue back as yet. My, my great fear is the day that I get a good critique. You know, <laughs> and I, actually, I actually have to slap myself awake and, and make an intelligent uh, response. Other people very happy with it, um, and those who are happy with it tend to be the ones who are better able to follow the argument because they want to, not 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 because uh, you know only in, you know, <laughs> or it could be right. that only the very only the very stupid disagree with me. that would be the self serving explanation. So let's go with that. Yeah, I like it. Hey, uh, so the, this book, I mean, I've, I've, I loved it. I mean, there's um, for a, a number of reasons. I've, I've, I've only, I've read, I read through it once, and then actually, in, and in preparation for this one, I got to get through um, the experience of God and uh, the what is your one on problem of evil, the um, the doors of the sea. So, I'm, right, I'm, right, right. I'm thrilled to uh, to have you on here. Thank you for the book. Um, I, I would love just to jump right in, man. There's so many things we could talk about. Uh, one of the things. Well, you know, I've had another book come out since that all shall be saved. No, have you really? Yeah, yeah. It's called the Mystery of Castle Mac Gorilla. Oh, <laughs> it's a children children's book I wrote with my son. I thought that's what we were going to no talk way. about today. I'm, I'm deeply disappointed. Wait, I'm looking I mean, this up right now. Can I get a, a two hour delivery on this, and we could circle back uh, end of the day? There you go. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. Oh, that's great. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but all right, we can talk about the other bloody book if you must. Yeah, right? So probably only stupid people who disagree with that one as well. I suppose, yeah, the right? children's one, exactly. Well, no one goes to hell in that one either. Oh, so okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Actually, I, I do believe in hell. Let's throw that out there uh, just uh, at the beginning. But but none of the characters in the children's book have to go through. There you go. So can we actually? All right. I kind of want to start there with that comment, Stephen. Unless you're going to say something, because uh, define. Oh, there's so many ways we can set context here, but I actually was curious, like when you, what, what hell means to you, right? Like what you say, I actually do believe in hell, but of course you're contrasting the infernalist argument, this whole book. What hell means to me, uh, the Washington nationals winning a, a baseball championship. I mean, that's a, <laughs> really that, hell on that was, that, yeah, that was, that was pretty bad. Uh, it, uh, I think, uh, well, um, you, you know, as 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 no doubt you're aware, uh, Christian universalism is a tradition as ancient as Christian theology itself, and uh, the traditional view of the language of hell in in figures like Clement and Origen or Gregory of Nyssa or the rest is the fire of divine love, purifying. Uh, rational natures of the things that uh, separate them from God, their, their hatreds, their ignorances, their cruelties, their egoisms. Um, so it's, it's a real experience. It's a thing to be feared. It's a thing that we experience both in this life and presumably in the life to come. <laughs> I mean, presuming there is a life to come because I believe it. Uh, but uh, it, what it isn't is, is an eternal state of retributive punishment consisting in perpetual conscious torment uh, uh, so um, but I 
but I, but it is, you know, uh, it, it, there's no such thing. I mean, not that I'm aware of, at least, not in the ancient tradition and not in the larger universalist tradition. There's no such thing as a universalism without consequences that doesn't require the soul to be remade uh, in the image of God or restored to the image of God so that it can take on the likeness of God. Uh, and... Someone like Origen, for instance, or Gregory of Nyssa, assumed that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he talked about uh, all men's work being tried by fire and some some receiving a reward because their works withstand the fire, mm -hmm. others seeing their works consumed nonetheless are saved as by fire, that uh, for someone like Origen, or for Origen, <laughs> Is is a description of what the fire of hell is. Yeah. Got so, this, gosh, I mean, the the I, I have I have often heard um, the, the perspective, and, and I guess just to clarify, you would describe your position, if you will, as Christian universalism, right? Yes, uh, apocatastatist. Uh, you know, I I believe in uh, universal restoration of all things, actually, of all creation and of all souls, certainly. Excellent. So, when I, I mean, in in, uh, in like evangelical circles, I often hear this kind of decried as like a sort of a soft new age, you know, you, you just don't really want to take a stand on, on the wrath of God or, or, uh, you know, you don't, you don't really believe in the content of the cross. So, I mean, I, I know you've gotten those kinds of reactions. So how do you, how do you shut that down pretty quick? Um, well, I mean, first of all, obviously it's not new age spirituality yeah. since it goes back to the early centuries of the church, and it's certainly uh, it's certainly not uh, a feel good uh, sort of uh, claim, is it? I mean, you know, Origen actually thought it was a terrifying truth that we would have to be separated from the uh, things that that we cling to uh, uh, in this world that that, that we love, though, though we shouldn't. I mean, he. Uh, you know, or, or Gregory. I mean, he speaks of it like the cautery applied to a wound, or like surgery. They saw it as a terrifying thing, actually, to have to face who you are and have to be separated from the things that you've chosen to build your life around, rather than than love of God and love of your neighbor. Uh, it's certainly not a, a claim that uh, everyone gets a free ticket of entry and, and that the past is of no consequence. It is, it's, it's simply that uh, God will never have done with us and, until he has made us whole, even, uh, e even if that's a, a profoundly painful and uh, mm. difficult process for us. Why has this kind of been... Uh lost at least among you know evangelical circles in america from from the from the debate in a lot of ways i mean this clearly was a I mean, your book makes it pretty clear this was this is not a new position this is this has been in the conversation from the beginning how how did it sort of get pushed out well, I don't. I mean, you see. Well, I don't know much about evangelical circles. Uh, my experience of them is that, to be honest, most evangelicals don't have much of a grasp of the uh, history of, of Christian belief down the centuries mm -hmm. and of its variety. 
And many of them, oh, excuse me, I'm going to have to close my uh, email or it's going to keep making that noise at you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Many of them uh, are, to to be honest, simply, you know, going from what they've always heard and from the translations of scripture that are available to them and and aren't aware either of a larger global community of Christian belief or a larger history of its of its transmission. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's been pushed out. I just, I just don't think it's ever been let in. In, in the first part of your book, and I guess we can kind of give our, our listeners a little bit of an overview. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but there are, uh, I mean, the book is fantastic. We listeners need to get it, but it, the way it's structured is you've got in the beginning part, there's the, the, the framing the question and then dotting the answers you're wrestling with. You're, you're laying out the historical context of the conversation showing some of the inadequacies of the common responses, and then you lead us through four meditations, um, uh, each reflecting on, uh, um, I don't know, I guess, one, of the, one of the components of, of the conversation, what is God, what is judgment, what's a person, um, and um, what is freedom? What yeah. is freedom exactly? So this, but and, and your argument is rooted in classical theism, which I I loved because I mean a lot of our friends in circles, we have a lot of uh, you know friends that are in kind of the deconstructing ex evangelical whatever kind of camp, if you can call it that. And of course, right now, what is uh, what's what's been popular, and I, I actually, I mean, I, I have found it uh, helpful and engaging and. Um, interesting framework is process thought. Um, but what I love about this book is it, is, it's, it seems entirely incompatible with process thought. Um, yeah. And you highlight that, I think, at one point, you correct? Yeah. yeah. I, I was wanting to pick your brain a little bit about that. How, what, are your th- what are your thoughts on, on process and, and how does this book, I think, offer better questions to the problem or better answers to the problem of evil than what God is uh, doing? And, well, look, I mean, I, I, my reason for rejecting process theology is I believe that it's uh, ultimately logically incoherent. It, it can't be true in modal terms, or at least not if by God we mean the source of all being. I just think the uh, uh, the classical logic of transcendence withstands uh, um, close scrutiny uh, in a way that the process thought doesn't. But uh, within, uh, uh, if you look at things from the perspective of process, or not even just from the, you know, I mean, there are certain forms of German idealism that would get, that would yield the same thing, like the middle Schelling's thought. If uh, the identity of God is tied up within, uh, within the ambiguities of, of created history, then evil perhaps has a certain educative or probative value, and God, in a sense, uh, can be exculpated of certain of the tragic uh, uh, realities of history. Uh, And this would even include the way the story ends up. Um, And to me, uh, you know, if... In fact, I believe that it were metaphysically or logically possible to embrace a process view of reality. It wouldn't make me happy, but I could see how it would answer questions for some people. Since I don't think it's a legitimate uh, school of thought, I don't think it can sustain itself against a rigorous critique, 
the questions that interest me are what the identity of God is in relation to creation, if indeed we, we take uh, the, the classical attributes seriously, that God is the source and end of all being, uh, changeless, you know, uh, possessed of all the transcendental perfections in infinite uh, plenitude and so on and so forth. And that raises a, a whole number of questions that, that in uh, traditional theology often get overlooked. Um, hmm. I don't know what to tell you about process theology, except that I, it's just, uh, I just don't think it's philosophically cogent. Um, and if it were, I would still have to say, if you have this, this uh, divine consciousness in process, then it is, it is a reality in which possibility exceeds actuality, and therefore, in some sense, cannot be the source of its own being. And so I would simply say, where does this, this reality come from? Because wherever it comes from is the real horizon of the divine, the God beyond gods. Uh, so I still wouldn't be satisfied with it. I'd still say, well, there has to be a still higher truth, uh, a source of actuality that is not uh, dependent upon something higher than itself in the order of being. Yeah. Can we can we camp there for a minute? So classical theism. If you must. <laughs> I figured you wouldn't mind. Um, th this vision of God, uh, I, I mean, I, I've heard things like, you know, God is God is not just good, he is the good. Um, but I, I, I think often, I mean, what is what is taken, what, what is conceived of as God is what you describe of in, in your other book, uh, in one of your other books, Experience of God, as really a, a, a demiurge um, in a lot of popular Christianity. Yeah. So, how, can you draw yeah. that distinction? What, what, when you say that God is the good, or goodness as such, or that the, these transcendental ideals, can you, can you dig into that a little bit for us and help us make make sense of that distinction? Well, I mean, I, I, I could direct you to that book you just mentioned, The Experience of God. I'm not sure I, c I can do it in three or four minutes uh, off the top of my head, but yeah, definitely. Uh, either God is a being among other beings uh, who uh, in that sense is subordinate to the perfections of being I mean is a is a dependent reality or he is himself the source of all things and if he is the source of all things he also has to be uh, the one in which in, in whom those perfections uh, exist as identity not as simply accidents of his nature or predicates that can be applied to him or qualities that he possesses in the way other beings possess them. Uh, and again, I mean, I, I have to direct people to yeah. the book, but, but it's, it's definitely the case that uh, much, uh, much popular theology, but also a lot of Anglo-American religious philosophy thinks of God in these terms as just the biggest being the most powerful being of all, uh, rather than than in a proper sense the source and ground and end of all reality, and I, th I think uh, at the end of the day you end up with a mythology that that still doesn't explain certain fundamental questions like why is there anything at all, you know. Um, the classical theism, which is not the unique possession of uh, Christian or even Western thought. I mean, it, it you, you find it expressed wherever serious 
uh, theistic, monotheistic traditions with with rich philosophical uh, cultures have have meditated on what it means to speak of of uh, God as as the fullness of all reality uh, is is logically entailed, I think, in any 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 set of serious arguments about about things like why there is a world you know i i i don't know how else to justify it i think that uh, it would be uh it's easier to think of god as just a large psychological subjectivity like ourselves Mm -hmm. Uh, but in doing so you're thinking of god again as a creature whose own reality is yet to be realized uh and any any being of whom that's true any being that can move uh from potency to act to use a thomistic language is a contingent being i mean it's simply not you know not god in an ultimate sense and so you find yourself back in the same set of quandaries where did this guy come from right (laughs) uh Anyway, that's all rather complicated for. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not sure that that was that was startlingly it's, lucid. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm dragging with it. It's, it's no. helpful. Uh, it's a helpful summary. But how, how is it um, when it comes to this question of, of what happens in the end? You know. Uh, well, look, I mean, a lot of people, the, you mentioned the four meditations in the book. The first meditation uh, I've seen read badly by people who think it's it's a question of theodicy. Why does God let bad things happen if he's omnipotent? That's not the issue. It, 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 there's an old uh, tendency, I mean, it, and it goes back into the patristic period, uh, of saying that there are certain things that God directly determines. And other things that he merely permits, uh, because he never directly desires evil. And in fact, the scripture is pretty clear. The, the Christian claim is that God n- never directly desires the loss mm-hmm. of anyone. You know, it is his will that all should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not something that occurs to him that any one of these little ones should perish and so on and so forth. Anytime there's a statement regarding God's will for his creatures, it's will, a will for their universal salvation. You know, he's not delaying as some would reckon delay, but so that all men, all human beings uh, might be saved, basically. Uh, so, it's it's granted in the New Testament that a natural that that, that uh, anyone's loss, anyone's damnation would be, if nothing else, a natural evil. That is, an, a, some, a tragedy, something that it would be better had not ha- had it not happened. And unless you're a hard and fast Calvinist, and there are any number of reasons why you shouldn't be, but if uh, you know, unless you're someone who who thinks that that the only divine attribute is sovereignty and therefore the power of God to damn and the power of God to save uh, uh, are both have to be displayed by election and dereliction. And there are any number of philosophical reasons why that, that can't be true, but also it's not good biblical theology. You have to say, as the tradition does, well, there's some things that God directly 
wishes, directly uh, determines. Others that he permits, though they though they are contrary to his will, though they are natural evils, because if he directly willed them, then they would become moral evils, and the and the goodness of God would be compromised. But here's the problem. If you have a metaphysics of creation from nothingness, then the ultimate state, the ultimate fully formed uh, condition of creation uh, is contingent on nothing but uh, the antecedent will of God. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and the question is, can he will the good of creation as a good in itself or only as a relative mm-hmm. good? That is to say... Um, you know, it's meaningless to make the the distinction between what God directly wills or what God merely permits if the fully formed idea of creation is something that in his omnipotence and omniscience he has willed. It is something upon which he is not contingent, that is, I'm not a process theologian. He does not require creation in order to become who he is, but rather who he is is fully expressed by his determinations in creation. Well, then the distinction disappears because even what God would will as a potential possible outcome, if, if we were thinking of God in that sort of way, in, in game theory terms, Potentially, someone might have to go to hell to make this work, but ideally it wouldn't. That possibility is already entailed, if nothing else, stochastically as a possibility within his decision to create, which means that from everlasting, creation could always only be a relative good. And if God expresses his nature in and must do, because he's not, He's not forged by creation, he forges creation. Then God himself becomes only relatively good. He, you know, there's a price that has been paid, uh, uh, an accommodation made with tragic necessity uh, that he has hammered out with his own omnipotence. Uh, now, what's the point of this argument? It's simply that the traditional claims about the goodness of God and about the difference between permission and direct determination fall apart at the eschatological horizon of creation. At that point, you may want to say, well, wouldn't we be better off with a process theology, you know, because then we could exculpate God? Well, not really. I mean, because then God is himself, his identity. Uh, Remember, the God of process is a history. Who he is is what has gone into making him who he is. Uh, The God of process theology, however much he may have learned from Auschwitz, say, nonetheless retains Auschwitz as part of the mystery of who he is, part of the necessary course of his nature. All the evils of history become who he is, as well as all the goods. Um, I don't think I've made all that crystal clear at this point, but the, but the thing is, there are traditional claims about God that fall apart when we try to reconcile them with one another while clinging to the idea of any of a hell of eternal conscious torment now this is fully appreciated say by gregory of nyssa when he talks you know and and origin before him when they use first corinthians 15 as the template for understanding eschatology what do they see there 
they see uh, a, 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 an order by which it, not, not a story of say God being the father being appeased in his wrath by the death of the son or anything like that it's a story of restoration those uh, uh, the, the whole of creation for a series of you know tragic reasons having to do with spiritual freedom has been alienated from God but Christ comes to rescue those who have been lost and you know uh bit by bit, stage by stage, gradually reestablishes all things in their proper order until all things can be set in order under the Father, the God, and God can become all in all. And all of creation affirms this reality by gladly mm. praising. Exomologisite doesn't just mean we'll confess that, uh, you know, we'll confess the Lordship of Jesus, but in fact, we'll laud and magnify and rejoice in it. No, that. Thank you for sharing that. That's all. That's helpful. That was a lot. I think I followed, but no, that's helpful. I wanted to shift just just a bit in terms of you know, obviously the 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 core framework of the book is around you know you are disputing, of course, this this eternal conscious torment kind of traditional. Well, I don't even want to call it traditional understanding. Very common understanding of of what this hell is. One of the things just to, to hit on a couple of your core arguments. I love your just frankly, you sort of looking at common sense and logic, which sounds silly, but just the, the yeah. reality that so often around this argument, <laughs> we literally just do not use common sense. And there's a few things I want to ask about specifically with that. One, I appreciate how, um, well, well I, let me actually stop there. Why is it that so often with this, and you, you highlight this a bit in the book, we are just so resistant um, to any of any of these arguments that you lay out and holding fast to something, you know, where this this good God is, you know, punishing finite beings with infinite torture. You know, why is it that we cling so firmly to these arguments, even frankly, when they're you make it seem you know relatively easily disputable and and deplorable in terms of some of these stances? Well, there are a lot of answers to that. I mean, one is that just, you know, a lot of people have been told that's what the story is. Uh, a lot of them have been taught to read that language back into the New Testament, especially through the translations they're, they're aware of. Some honestly believe that uh, they're, you know, they're afraid that Hitler's going to get off the hook somehow, you know. There are, a, however, a disturbing number for whom hell is actually the best part of the story. Mm. You know, uh, for whom an eternal hell is. I mean, I, 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 as I say in the book, I've met a few of them. I hope that their their numbers are smaller than than perhaps they are. But there are those for whom there can't be winners without losers. Right. And and uh, and what's the point of winning if the losers aren't there to envy you <laughs> uh, for all of eternity? Right. I mean, you, you you've made it up the hard way. You got into the gated community. There's got to be someone on the other side of the gates, surely, who's envying you, your expensive car, your nice house, your safe neighborhood, the good schools. Um, and uh, th th there's that as well. I mean, there are any number of reasons you could go into the psychology of it. I'm just going to, you know, try to, to be as generous as I can and say, for the most part, people just think they 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 have to believe this, even though if it, in, in their heart of hearts they don't want to, and even if in their heart of hearts without knowing it, they really don't believe it. Right. Not as much as they think they do, and that also has been one of my experiences. I've been at funerals of people who've committed suicide, uh, and in one case, the fellow's 
father had been a, a hard and fast Thomas to accept in Thomas's claim that every suicide uh, is unforgivable because the person who did it didn't give himself time to be shriven of committing a murder. Uh, but when he was confronted with his own son's death by his own hands and realized really what goes into that, the you know what 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 brings it, he he suddenly realized that uh, that there's no moral clarity here. This this isn't this wasn't a sane, happy, healthy person perversely deciding to do something evil. That in fact uh, he was a person lost in a world of confusion and pain was already in hell, and that that if God is just, that's the hell from which he'll be rescued, not the hell to which he'll be consigned forever. Mm. Um, as for people who don't trust common sense, I have no—I mean, or just their moral intuitions or their conscience—I have very little respect for that. I have to be honest. A faith. That is just. I'm going to believe this, even if it, if it's entirely impossible to make sense of logically. I don't consider that faith. I consider that a kind of uh, epistemological nihilism. If if you're capable of figuring out uh, simple logical questions in your day to day life that are, have moral meaning, like it's better for me to protect my child than to toss him into traffic, then you're capable of making analogical. Uh, deductions about the nature of God, especially when I mean they don't have to be. You don't have to pretend that you can understand the mind of God, but you have it clearly laid out for you if you're a Christian by Christ Himself when He says, when He tells His disciples, yes. "Your fathers, you know how a father deals with his son. I want you." to think of God's fatherhood in those terms. I want you yes. to make a rational, logical deduction from your own experience of being a father to the way in which your father in the heavens loves you. Yes. Yes. Why does it? Yes. And you highlight this in the book that even the definition of goodness, right? We've been twisted into this kind of logical, weird sort of twister game of and, and moral backwardness, if you will, that okay, for some reason, why does the definition of good and justice change when we talk about God and sending people to hell? Right, it's like we... we right, well, it, it doesn't just change, it becomes, it, it flips entirely, it becomes yeah. the antithesis. And, and if you look at the book, um, and I'll admit that uh, maybe I would have been better served if I just written it out as a series of propositions, but I'm, I'm allergic to that style of prose. <laughs> Uh, there, there, are, there are basically five major themes, six major themes. Uh, but the one that subtends the book quietly, that's announced at the beginning, but there, it has kind of holds together the whole rationality of the argument, is the danger of what I call the contagion of equivocity. Mm -hmm. Because in order for Christian language to have any meaning at all, in order for the language of faith to have any meaning at all, in, in fact, in order for faith itself to have any meaning at all, there has to be some analogical continuity between the way we use words in the, in the context of finite created reality and the way we attribute them to God. Now, we grant there's an apophatic rule that says that the way, that what these words mean in relation to God infinitely surpasses my ability to comprehend, meaning not that it's just a, a blank paradoxical mystery, but just basically infinite goodness so far surpasses the little bit of goodness of which I'm capable that 
that obviously I can't comprehend it, but I have some sense of it. Uh, the fatherhood of God. Again, mm -hmm. I can speak analogically of it. Let's use a word I mean, directly from the scripture, the fatherhood of, of God. You know, uh, The depth of that paternal love is greater than, than, than I, in my finite feebleness, am capable of. I can't call, I, my love is not so powerful that I can call uh, my children into existence out of nothingness, for instance. But when you start using words in a way in which they're transparently, uh, they become transparently antithetical to their, to their uses in this world, at that point, they become utterly unintelligible and you've evacuated all Christian language of both semantic and syntactic meaning. Mm. And, and you can't just do this in certain areas. As soon as you allow for that principle, it contaminates the whole of theology. All of Christian language becomes equally meaningless. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the whole argument of the book presumes that this contagion of equivocity is the danger that, that, that has to be avoided at all costs. Or, as I say in the book, you've got a, an incoherent uh, faith. Right. right. So God's, God's goodness can't be so good that he can... Do bad. Well, in the purely emotional language that I end up with, I mean, I, I guess you could say it is, but I, I'm actually making a logical point is I think there's a series, I can't remember the exact series of sentences, but it was something like, if justice means anything, it cannot mean right. that. If love means anything, it cannot mean that. If goodness right. means anything, it cannot mean that. And uh, those, aren't, those aren't just... Uh, uh, rhetorical devices or apostrophes to to an absent argument; those are actually logical conclusions right. drawn from from the whole mm. book. Right. So, something else you say, which I love, um, we don't really believe what we think we believe, right? Yeah. So, we because we don't really think about what it is we're saying, right? So, when you if you actually consider and you use arguments, you use examples, right, of, of human beings, real human beings, flesh and blood people that we, you know, that we know and that we love in our lives, when we actually consider that, that a quote-unquote loving God as expressed in Jesus is ultimately sending, again, finite beings into an infinite torture, um, you know, I don't think, you know, and you say, and I've said this actually before, why do I work a full-time job? Why aren't I, I literally proselytizing like evangelizing the world on a daily basis? Because the stakes are so radically high if in the end, you know, 99.9% .9 of folks are going to burn for eternity. But we're not, we don't actually necessarily yeah. think that. I think because, you know, I quote uh, Julian of Norwich at, at one point, um, that, you know, her famous was she, unlike Thomas Aquinas, when she asks the question of, of uh, how, how there can be blessedness in heaven if, they, if the blessed know of the torments of the damned, Thomas said, in fact, that knowledge would increase their blessedness by contrast. Mm. And again, I'm not blaming Thomas for this. I, my, my claim in the book, I, I, I get attacked for the rhetoric of the book as if I'm calling Thomas or Augustine moral idiots. I don't. I say that I say again and again that certain beliefs that we profess uh, are, are actually morally idiotic. But I'm clear to say, not the reason they've, that even the greatest minds in Christian history have ventured these claims in the past is because they forced themselves into an inescapable situation by 
accepting things that they didn't need to accept, either through misprision or just through uh, tradition that's been handed to them. Well, Julian, of course, is just she. She doesn't react like Thomas. Her claim goes the other way. It says how can the, and and she just resolves that somehow God tells her in a mysterious way that the meaning of which she leaves open that actually in the end all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. And I think that tacitly many Christians have this, you know, they, 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 at the level of uh, everyday consciousness, they have the categories of heaven and hell. But if they force themselves to think through uh, literally the content of, of, of what they think they believe about mm-hmm. hell, they would go insane. Or they would just end up like Francis Xavier, you know, just working themselves. I mean, it, it, you know, to me, there, there's something poignant in the story. Those who don't know about St. Francis Xavier, he's, I, t- I choose him uh, because he's a Jesuit saint who spent his life in India and the Far East, uh, Japan, among other places, trying to proselytize, honestly in the belief that every unbaptized soul would descend to eternal perdition and uh and just you know actually literally just working himself to death to try to pluck as many souls out of the fires of hell as possible but then you ask well exactly who is he trying to save them from i mean what what's he doing with his life he's he's in a desperate race to get as many uh uh baptized as possible so there'll be that many whom God does not Mm. condemn. So he's trying to save them from God. I mean, you know, something has gone terrifically amiss in the way we understand the gospel. If we've gotten to the point, you know, that, uh, that, 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 that what we're really the most terrible thing imaginable, uh, is just to be so unlucky as, as, as not to have, uh, have gotten the, uh, the ticket of entry into the kingdom so that God, supposedly the good and loving God, will then, according to the rules of the game, be obliged yeah. to torture mm-hmm. us forever. Uh, and I think the truth is, if I really, you know, I, I enter into, in, into all sorts of dialogue with people of other faiths, if I really... Uh, believe that that God, you know, that this is that 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 we existed in this sort of strange game, which is what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a lottery for reasons I describe in the book. Even whether you're a predestinarian or not, it all, all comes out at the end still to a kind of meaningless lottery. Then uh, I wouldn't have children. Right. I uh, certainly wouldn't be willing to risk even the, the soul of my child by bringing him into a world in which the odds are that bad. And I think I, I, I'd like to think that I have enough of a conscience that I would uh, I would uh, spend my life trying to do as Francis Xavier did. In fact, I might feel that I have to because if my conscience doesn't instruct me to do that, maybe I'm going to hell for not having enough of a conscience. Yeah. You know. <laughs> There's, there's something terrifically – I mean, it, it, it really is strange the way we divide our consciousness. At one level, if we're Christians, we have the example in person of Christ, the moral example, the spiritual example. And that shapes us and forms us. And if we're wise, tells us that we should do some things and shouldn't do others. The other side of our consciousness, though, the framing narrative in which we fit it, 
is is an absurd game of chance. And we don't reconcile those two parts uh, of, of, of our thinking, in part because I think that the framing narrative, the latter, the game of chance, is something that we confess, but in, our, in the deepest, region, uh, deepest reaches of our minds and souls, we never really believed to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I, th- it's, I think it comes from wow. I mean, people want people want to have faith. They want they want to we want. I, I, I think it's perceived as, as what it means to be faithful to the tradition. It's like I, I don't understand. It, but. You see, there's no such thing as unreasoning faith. Uh, there, don't we should never we should never allow ourselves to be. If you uh, cannot affirm something with your reason. Then, then the act of submission to it is an act of faithlessness because it, you're saying that rational truth is a matter of indifference to you. Simply mm. wanting to be on the right side is what's important. But that, right. means, that means that your faith is already bad faith. That is, it's, it's a willingness to betray uh, your, no, your, your knowledge of truth or your desire for the truth as a rational being in order to gain the sanctuary you hope uh, to gain, and uh, see, I just I, wow. to me the notion that that you can have a faith that will not allow itself to question, and that will not accord rational, as you call common sense or logical arguments, a real authority in trying to determine what it believes. I, I don't mm. regard as faith at all. I mean, I, I I regard it as the surrender of faith. I mean, this. I mean, why the surrender of faith? Yeah. I mean, the betrayal of faith, the surrender right. of reason. Yeah. What about the concern right. for freedom? Because inevitably, I mean, we, we've talked about the the, the classical uh, theist perspective of God and God not just being the most up and to the right thing, but actually, you know, goodness, uh, the, the the transcendentals in, in in themselves. It's funny. People uh, have a funny idea about freedom in the modern age, which is that freedom is mm-hmm. simply the power to choose. But uh, of, of course, that can't be right, because the, the power to choose I- itself is only meaningful if you know what you're choosing and can do it with with uh, with full application of mind right. and will. And in order for that to be the case, you have to have some prior attraction to to sort of abstract values like goodness, truth, beauty, according to which you can judge the the choices you have to make. That's not to say you can't choose to do something you know to be evil, but but, uh, even in doing that, uh, you're going to be choosing it because you you hope it will satisfy your nature, it will bring you a happiness that you can't get by not doing it. And in that regard, if you believe what Christianity says, you're mistaken, right? I mean, ultimately, you're going to be uh, you're, you're making a choice that's more destructive to you than anything else. There's never any moment of just absolute freedom of choice, right? We're always, uh, you know, it's always a relative claim. But even so, if the, the will were capable – I mean, if freedom consisted simply in the power of the will suddenly to choose an end for itself and to pursue that end, well, then that wouldn't be much different from just a blank physiological impulse. You know, there'd be no context of rationality. There'd be no context of meaning or of purpose. The reason we're free is because before we even 
start to deliberate upon anything, we already have some longing for happiness or some longing to know what is true or some preference for what is beautiful. Uh, and that means from a classical theistic perspective, which is the one that I'm assuming most of my Christian readers take, is that implicit in each of us is an aboriginal longing for God. And that's what sets us free to make finite deliberative decisions, because it gives us a scope of abstract evaluations to which we can refer, an index of desirable ends to which we can refer each decision we're making in the present. Now, again, that doesn't mean that a perverse person might not say, oh, I, I prefer cruelty to love. But it is my claim that the person who makes that decision is to some significant degree deceived about his or her own nature, about, about what, where true happiness lies, about what the good is. And so that ability to choose is just as much a bondage of the will as it is the freedom of the will. Augustine was very good on this, right? I mean, when he thinks about stealing pears from a pear tree, at first he says, did I love the evil just for itself? Because he realizes that his will was in bondage. He was doing something that intellectually he knew wasn't good. But then ultimately he realizes, well, no, he was drawn towards it because the fruit itself was desirable, because right. the companionship with his friends was desirable, because at some level in his nature, he thought he would be happier if he did this thing, even though it turned out in the end it, it had agonizing consequences for him. I thought that was a fascinating point, that, that, that the, those impulses start from something good, even, though, even, the wicked, even, even when it's towards wickedness. Yeah. Oh, ultimately, you can't reject God the way you can reject anything else. You can reject a glass of wine. And there's no intentional uh, remainder left, okay? You just didn't want that glass of wine. But every decision you make one way or the other in this life, however perverse, is based upon a prior desire for God. So even when you reject God, you do so out of a deeper longing for God. And that, and that ambiguity can't be untied in mm -hmm. this life. I can say, I mean, that, and, and again, remember, the arguments on freedom in my book are not trying to prove universalism. They're trying to prove that the free will defense of hell makes no sense. Yeah. And I, 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 forgive me if I'm repeating something right. I may have said on some other interview. I don't remember if I have or not. Uh, but the example that I've gotten in the habit of using lately is, is the old Frank Stockton story, The Lady or the Tiger. Do you know that? No, I don't know that. No, go for it. Well, Frank Stockton was a, a very good American writer, principally of short stories, and The Lady or the Tiger is his most famous. And it's it, the story is it, just to make a story. The, it's it's a wonderful tale, a uh, barbaric kingdom, right? And uh, if uh, the king has come up with a a, a way of uh, dealing with criminals, he puts them in an arena, uh, gives them two doors. They choose one or the other, not knowing which is which. Behind one is a beautiful maiden. And if you choose that door, then you get the lady, you marry her. Uh, now, this isn't always good because you may already be married, so it's not, it's not necessarily. But the other door is a hungry tiger, and if you open it, you'll be shredded, right? In the story, you'll be eaten. 
in the story, a low-level courtier has conducted a romance with one of the king's daughters. Uh, he's sentenced to the arena. The king's daughter is up in the gallery watching him in the arena. She has uh, discovered, though, by means of her own, which door is which. So she sends a signal to the man in the arena telling him which door to open. Hmm. Hmm. The question you're asked at that point is, which door did she tell him to open? You know, was her, <laughs> Did she want him to be married to right. the beautiful maiden, or would she prefer that he be eaten by a tiger? Well, okay, forget that. Just consider the situation. The man in the arena, is he more free if he doesn't know which door is which, or if he does? Hmm. Is, his, is the choice he's about yeah. to make more of a free choice or less? Well, clearly it's more. I mean, because he, can, he, he knows what he wants and therefore the choice he's making yeah. is based on what he wants, right? Uh, but if, that, if, if, you're, if you're given that situation, uh, consider him uh, for a moment. Uh, given the situation – what's the likelihood that he's going to choose the door with the tiger? It's, it's, it's fairly low. Can I, you know, we're having a hard time cutting to the chase here, guys. <laughs> you know, we're not, we clearly need to go back to school. <laughs> yeah, but, but think about it. No, I mean, now it could be that he's a little bit mentally unstable and would rather be devoured by a sure. tiger. Than, yeah. But on the whole, uh, whichever choice he makes is freer to the precise degree that he knows what he's choosing. Mm-hmm. All right. And and so the ability to choose in itself isn't freedom, right? It's yeah. the ability to choose knowing the consequences and the meaning of your yes. choices. And the, so the more you know, the less likely it is that you're going to, to, to make certain choices. In fact, the choices become fewer and fewer in a sense because, because the more you know, the more you're drawn yeah. towards what really will uh, fulfill you in the end you seek um if we don't remember that if we think of if we think in the modern libertarian way that there's something first of all that's not even logically possible that 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 the will is free just by spontaneously deciding things for itself without a prior set of rationales uh then we can fall and you know say oh the free will defense of god yeah of, of, of hell yes that um that, that hell guarantees human freedom. But it's really a meaningless argument at the end of the day because we're not talking about freedom. We're simply talking about the degree to which uh, someone has not been freed mm-hmm. from the delusion, the pain, the uh, damage to his or her own nature that, that, that separates the creature from God. Right. And so your premise is then when some when that free when true freedom is actually attainable when they sort of see what's really behind the veil then you know you, you argue I, th- I think this is correct that you can't not choose God yeah at no that I mean a rational nature and Augustine says as much uh, Thomas Aquinas says as much right mm-hmm. the Maximus the Confessor says it it's not possible. Uh, uh, not to seek, yeah. uh, uh, well, just not to seek, I don't know how to put it, not to seek happiness, but not to seek a fulfillment, one that will actually satisfy the the, the rational desires of the soul. Right. So whether, I mean, again, that's not a proof of universalism. It is a proof that the, that, that what has become the, uh, the most popular 
apologetic way of making the idea of a hell of, of eternal torment sound somehow morally defensible does not work. It's simply it's it's based on premises that don't hold together. Right. Saying, and even like our, our our justice system right now has a way of accounting mm. for that. Like I mean, if exactly. there's someone who commits a heinous crime, but is proven to not be of sound mind, it would be a right. gross injustice for us then to put on that person the maximum sentence. Right. We presume that justice has to be proportionate to competency of yeah. mind. One has to be compass mentis and what in legal terms is called mens rea, the ability of the intention of the of of the of the person on trial to match the the actus reus, the actual thing that he or she did, and that's 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 a fair and it seems to me logically impeccable understanding of what justice is. Yeah. Why why do you feel um, most of your book is is, is written yeah. uh, sort of yeah. a, a, I guess you say like, like against infernalism as it seems to be kind of your primary target. Um, yeah meaning you know the eternal conscious torment view of hell but there's another perspective conditionalism or annihilationism um yeah this idea that well maybe maybe in judgment you know there, there's a punishment but then there's just sort of an extinction why why do you feel that christian universalism is is, is still a more a, a well there there yeah there are any number of reasons one is i don't believe that we're saved or damned as individuals Okay, I, I mean, I'm quite clear on what I think it is that constitutes a human mm -hmm. person, and uh, you know, if, uh, if if it involves, for instance, me reconciling myself to say someone I love being destroyed rather than restored, uh, part of myself is lost with that person is not saved. Another is that I believe that that. Scripture is telling the truth right. when it says God will be all in all, and that there will there will not be any aspect of creation that subspecie aeternitatis right. ever succeeded in excluding God. Uh, it's also uh, you know, and and there are any number of other reasons. I mean, the, uh, I also that uh, again from the perspective of the end, uh, is this the natural evil that God? Uh, willingly uh, is willing to accommodate in the calculus of the goodness of creation. Again, one that reduces the goodness of the act of creation to a relative good, but then, curiously enough, precisely because of the metaphysics of creation from nothingness, reduces God himself and his eternal identity to one who is only relatively good. Mm. There are any number of reasons, I, I, but I'll say this, that comes closer to the actual scriptural language. Uh, there are no actual images of perpetual torment in the New Testament. As I, I point this out, there's a, there are a few phrases that translated in a certain way might be taken to mean that. I mean, even when uh, Jesus in Matthew 25 speaks of what well, what I've called the chastening of the age in my translation. But even if you wanted to read it as eternal punishment, it could just be final, absolute annihilation. Uh, but the imagery that Christ uses quite often is just destruction and disposal, right? I mean, that's that's what furnaces do. That's what the Gehenna does, actually. If you if you if you, it's a a place of 
of carrion and of and of the right. uh, the burning of rubbish and of the uh, the devouring of corpses. It's a place where God can destroy both body and soul. And there are images of destruction there. There are also images of exclusion, and then there are images of imprisonment and torture. Although those, as I always like to point out, always come with an until attached. They're always for finite turn. So Christ uses all sorts of metaphors, uh, right. that, and they don't, you know, forgive me, uh, 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 you know, if, if fundamentalists wouldn't be happy to hear this, but they're, they're not meant to be consistent with one another. They're not literal descriptions. But of the metaphors he uses, you do have metaphors of destruction. Uh, so that would be a more biblical possibility. I just think that Paul's vision in 1 Corinthians 15, and again, certain things, what I understand what it is to be a person, uh, for me, preclude the possibility that that could be the answer either. Do you think, um, you know, one of the things that I, that I was that I was thinking about throughout the book was right. this argument being so grounded in classical theism. How familiar would Jesus have been have been with this idea about what what God is or who God is and what freedom is and and would he have conceived? You're, you're, you're asking me to know the mind of Jesus. Yeah, well, you know, you're Eastern Orthodox. I figure you're the guy I should ask, right? Well, but but they're different. I mean, they're obviously th- throughout theological history, there were different notions of how we should understand how a finite uh, human mind and infinite divine knowledge both coexist in a single subject. And obviously, no one ever came up with a definitive doctrine or even a definitive theological picture that anyone's obliged to yeah. take seriously. But would Jesus of Nazareth have Na- I don't know, because, you know, the truth is we, we have a fairly fictionalized Hollywood picture of, of Judea and Galilee in Christ's time. It was actually a very Hellenistic culture. Even in the hinterlands of the Galilee, uh, there's, there's, you know, most Jews probably were more familiar with the Septuagint than they were with any sort of uh, Hebrew text of, of the Bible. And we know that you know, like the Pharisees were heavily influenced by, by Greek thought. So it's possible that uh, Jesus would have been aware of many philosophical currents. We know that Paul was, certainly. Paul mm-hmm. uh, clearly speaks like an educated Pharisee of his time, fully at home in Hellenistic metaphysics and cosmology. So I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that the, the Christ's knowledge of the Father is so immediate and absolute that it didn't require philosophical categories. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I just trying to imagine the consciousness of Jesus. I think is is uh, not only a little presumptuous, but but uh, ultimately kind of futile. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more in terms of the, like the, the cultural cultural context i mean i'm I'm, well again i mean you can fall into this i i see like the uh one of our arch infernalists these days though he really doesn't have the scholarship uh to know the period like michael mcclymont talks about you know gregory of nissa got it wrong because he thought in greek categories rather than jewish and you really have to have an incredibly anachronistic understanding of the Judaism of, first cent- of the first century Greco-Roman world to say something like that. Mm. There were, I mean, l- he's thinking in terms of some sort of c- 
conflation of later rabbinic Judaism with the prophetic tradition. But in the in uh, the Judaism of the first century, this is incredibly rich, intellectually adventurous, but in no way homogenous culture of, of religious beliefs. And they've made full use of Persian and Greek ideas, and they, they were quite happy. When you read uh, someone like Philo of Alexandria, a philosopher, Jewish philosopher who was a contemporary of Christ, he's not an eccentric anomaly. He represents what much of the educated uh, Jewish intellectual world was like. They, they were quite at home in Greek categories. So the, the opposition of Jewish and Greek or, or biblical and Hellenistic categories is just a, a historical fiction. It has more to do with Hollywood pictures like, uh, you know, about Jesus than it actually has to do hmm. with what the world Jesus lived in was really like. Yeah, you're not you're not you're not a new perspective fan, I suppose, huh? I, I I'm I'm a fan of uh, good classical education, and if you know uh, late antiquity, you know that that uh, that Judaism, Hellenistic Judaism, is not some uh, strange hybrid concept. Everything was Hellenistic. Uh, in the eastern part of the empire, and it wasn't a problem. And Jews and pagans presumed quite a lot of the same things about reality. Uh, there was a general tendency towards a philosophical or, or, or devotional monotheism, even among pagans. There was a cosmology, you know, of, of uh, the Empyrean and the fixed stars and the planetary spheres and how the, the space between the most high reality in this world was populated by divinities or angels or, you know, lesser spiritual intelligences right. that governed the nations and the ideas about spirit, about flesh, about body, all of these were shared in common. And it's just total nonsense to talk about the Judaism of the first century as though it were ninth century rabbinic Judaism with the Masoretic text as the only scripture. Right. Gosh, well, I know where the second podcast episode is going onto some of this context stuff. This is fascinating. I, one thing I love, and Dr. Hart, you just started to highlight this. Many listeners right, will go, okay, well, what about the Bible? Or what about the yeah. biblical text? You point out in the book, Paul has almost nothing to to do with or nothing to say whatsoever about eternal conscious torment. Uh, you pointed out has, not, not almost nothing. He has literally nothing. Literally nothing, right? You right. Yeah. And, and if you 15. think about it, that's quite a detail to admit if yeah. Yeah. If, if you think that that's that's the message of salvation believe right. in Christ or you're going to get you're going to get roasted for eternity it would it's right. rather odd that he would he, And you also don't see that you know you don't see it in the sermons in the book of acts yeah. um and I think yeah and you pointed some of the you know Matthew 25 there are certainly texts at a face value someone might read say what about this and that but what I wanted to wrap was you have this I mean you lay out of course you cite the Bible all throughout. But at one point in the book, you lay out, I think it's 20 to 25 oh, passages. And you, you start by asking the question, why don't we take these at face value? You know, like yeah, so it, it is curious, isn't it? Because yeah. there are no explicit claims about eternal torment in the New Testament. There are three or four very frightening verses, but all of which, though, are 
pictorial or metaphorical, you know. Then, on the other hand, we have what look like a remarkable collection of straight, forward, dogmatic claims, you know, uh, and, uh, and something that can't be just uh, contained within some artificially imposed notion of a limited covenant, like Romans 5.18 or 1 Corinthians 15.22, both of which you know, say that all who who, <laughs> who fell in Adam are, are saved in Christ. Right. You know, and, and and we have, the, and yet we read right over those, uh, and uh, impose instead with with great confidence a picture of uh, a hell of eternal torment right. that that literally nowhere appears in the pages of the text and isn't even attested to by the earliest post-canonical Christian documents like the Didache or the Apostolic Fathers. Yes. Well, I, I love landing on that because for those who are like, this is a yeah, for those who might be skeptical or like, where does this even come from? You know, well, I want to point out something else. I, was, I mean, I was accused of, of ignoring scripture in the book. The first and most demented of the reviews I got from, from First Things, which was really a kind of a, a, a commissioned hit piece because I had a falling out with my former magazine. Okay. What can you say? <laughs> but um, so I claimed that, that my whole biblical argument came down to one verse from First Timothy, which I thought was rather bizarre because, as you say, I, I go through a, quite a few passages. But that second meditation and the beginning of the third meditation are a biblical theology. I mean, I am trying to lay out uh, the picture that I think Gregory of Nessa provides, that Origen provides, which has the singular advantage of being able to make sense of all of the mm. texts. Now, whether one really believes in this notion of the two eschatological horizons or not, I, to me, there, you see it uh, as, as a very plausible way of making 1 Corinthians 15 chime with the whole deposit of Scripture. And, you know, I, there are other other aspects, preteritism and things like that I discussed, but uh, I, I was surprised that people, you know, uh, that, that there were critics who, because I didn't go through every right. single verse, if I characterize Christ's statements about judgment, uh, some are exclusion, some are destruction, some are imprisonment, I, I think everyone then can do the work for themselves at that point. They can go, well, this saying Conform, conforms to that category. Uh, I do think that that uh, I mean, I'm just going to say that the the universalist position is clearly more scriptural than the notion of 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 a hell of eternal torment. The argument would be with, as you say, the conditionalists or annihilationists, perhaps. But I, to me, uh, there's not any case to be made for 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 a hell of eternal conscious torment in scripture to me that's clearly mm. simply a later uh, a later misreading that's been imposed based uh, curiously enough in part on persian influenced intertestamental jewish literature but also based on platonic culture most people don't realize that the idea of an, of eternal torment does does appear in plato mm. In, in the Fido, in a way that it doesn't in the New Testament. Gosh. Man, well, this has been, thanks for highlighting that. This has been great. Dr. Hart, I appreciate you uh, 
pointing out, you know, we just scratched the surface on a number of things within the book and out of it. We'd, we'd encourage all our listeners, go get the book. Um, we found it fantastic. Yeah, the book is better. But but remember, I, I was caught off guard, too, because I thought we were talking about the castle, about the mystery of Castle Macarella, which really is, I like to, to me, I, I think that's my magnum opus. Well, the title alone, right? I mean, the yeah. title, <laughs> what is the age? I'm just curious. What's the age bracket for that book? Uh, we have kids. Well, you see, you see. Uh, one time, well, I, I, I've had uh, a six-year-old ask to have it read to her a second time, but I've also okay. had fifteen-year-old tell me that she read it twice. So, and I know that uh, some parents have told me that they laughed out loud for reading it. So, my bracket, my age bracket, would be <laughs> from six to ninety-seven. Nice. There you go. <laughs> the human race. <laughs> Yeah, I and and uh, and as I say, it actually, it's it's a it's a profoundly mm. universalist text as what well, text as well because none of the toy animals in it suffers eternal torment. Perfect. Yeah, you're, you're very aligned. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, Dr. Hart, thank you. Thanks so much for the time. I, I appreciate it here. No, well, and, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, and uh, I I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, thank you. Go check out the book, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.